0: Good morning. Glad you're here to hear God's Word and to talk about prayer one more time before we finish the series. And grace and peace is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was about seven or eight years ago when uh, my son Seth and I went up to Western Michigan. They were recruiting him for football and it was an official visit, so they had it planned where they had a meal for all the kids that they were recruiting and their parents that came with some of the coaches and uh, some of the other uh, booster club type people to help us like the school because they wanted him to pick that school <clears throat> and that football team to play for. So we're, we're, I am the preacher dad of this kid that they're recruiting, and they somehow found that out. So they made sure they invited the team chaplain to the dinner the night before the game that we all went to and parked him at the round table right next to me. He and his wife were guests of honor. I, being the uh, conversationalist that I was, I asked him all kinds of questions. you get to come to these very often? No, I don't. <laughs> Big tall guy, pastor of a local church, but he was chaplain for the football team. But he told me he had a very interesting volunteer job doing that he got to be on the sideline and wear a coach's shirt he got to pray with the guys before and after games and give devotions to those that wanted it the night before the game which I thought was pretty cool so it was obvious that they had the preacher guy next to the preacher dad so we'd like the school that's recruitment I get that the next day the coach's wife the head coach's wife had a little time with each one of us just socializing and she she told me a funny story about the chaplain she said he really gets into football he really gets into the game. She said, in fact, one time after a game when they, we had won, they got the whole team together like they often did in the middle of the field, and, and they asked the chaplain to say a prayer, and so he did. And, and they were, the next week, they were going to play their big rival, Central Michigan. And a huge rival. They have a clock in their locker room that says hours and minutes between whatever day it is of the year to when they play Central Michigan. So he he's praying along thank you for all the safety you gave us in the game for be, you know being with both sides of the team and for this character building thing that god you gave us in this football and all this and if it's your will next week help us beat the h e double l out of <laughs> central michigan <laughs> and she thought that was funny and it is funny but it's also indicative of prayer and How ubiquitous prayer is for all people, but how so often we miss the whole point and we're pretty far away from the heart of God, even though we're praying. In fact, you can, we have a saying, I didn't coin it, somebody many, many decades ago made this up, there are no atheists in a foxhole, in a battle, some of the the people are going to be praying, right? God, if you're out there somewhere, please help me win or save me and protect me. Prayer is common to all people because we are confronted with the fact that we're just this little bitty person in a great big universe on a planet that's very big and we know that we're not God but we kind of want to play God until we really need to face reality and then we pray. The problem with all of us is though we deep down know that natively, naturally, we were not born with a good prayer life. We were actually born with a really good self-conversation with ourselves because we are the center of our universe by nature. It's the way we're born. Now I want you to think about a person in your life that's the closest to God of anyone you've ever met. You got to know them and they just, you can just sense they are close to God. And you get that person in your mind I want you to multiply that times a hundred and you maybe have what it was like to hang out with Jesus Christ. Those disciples, when they were with Jesus, they knew they were with God the Son who was close to God the Father. Unless they miss it, there were a couple significant moments where out of the heavens God the Father said, this one is the person, the human that I'm well pleased in. They knew Jesus was close to God. And when they saw Jesus pray, they knew it wasn't a help us beat Central Michigan prayer or anything slightly more than that. It was true prayer. Lots of times when a a person first becomes a Christian or even before they become a Christian, they will say to somebody who they think is close to God and knows how to pray, please teach me to pray. I don't know even how to pray to God. And that is an honest admission that we all know deep inside we weren't born knowing how to pray. We were born having a self-conversation with ourselves and others like us. And so when the disciples saw Jesus praying, they said to him, teach us how to pray. Like John taught his disciples. We have that printed for you. It's in, on page 7. Please get it out. It is where Jesus introduces to them the thoughts of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer appears in the Bible in only two places. The first place is in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus gives a sermon about the Christian life. And this is what he says. If you're going to pray, when you pray, don't be like the pagans who go on vain, empty babblings before God and they think they're heard because of their many words instead you pray this way and he gave him the lord what we call the lord's prayer this is a little different it's not in a discourse it's actually in a in a conversation so it starts off luke 11 one day jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished one of his disciples said to him lord teach us to pray the way that john he means john the baptist taught his disciples to pray and jesus said to them when you pray say and then you can see here it's luke's luke's account of jesus giving the lord's prayer in a sermon about christian living and true prayer jesus says this is the way you should pray in response to a question from a disciple who said you're close to god i want that jesus said the same prayer do you get my drift that this is a very important part of scripture This part of Scripture is the pinnacle of what you and I need to understand and think about a lot when we think about prayer. And what has happened in society, in Christian culture, is that the the Lord's Prayer has been turned upside down and it's been made an incantation. We say it so much, so often that we don't think about it. And then, from the church, it has oozed out so that it's being said by many, many people who don't even know the heart of the Lord's Prayer, but they know it. They don't even know the Jesus that gave it to us very well, but they know it. In fact, to demonstrate my point there, we tried to use the modern version of the Lord's Prayer. Look at the faces. You're grimacing. (coughs) Where we didn't use the old the old King James-type English? Do you know who complained the most? The unchurched visitors. It's what they were familiar with from anything that was church. And they would say, why do you guys use that on the way out? Why do you use that weird form of the Lord's Prayer? I said, well, come back and we'll tell you more weird things. The Lord's Prayer is well-known. But it is, it is probably the least thought about well-known scripture on the whole planet. And I want to share with you, and I want you to grab onto this, that the Lord's Prayer is your ticket for a good, healthy, communicative relationship with God. When you say, God, what should I pray for? He goes, be careful what you ask for. Here it comes. This is what you should pray for. Start with our father. God is the father of all people. He's made everybody. He's just as much the, the creator of so, that, that enemy of yours as he is of you. And in the church, he's just as much the recreator by bringing that other person to faith, even if it's of someone that you don't enjoy being around, even though they're a believer. He's their father too. Our father. You are our family leader. I am in a relationship that's close, like a son or daughter to a father, our Father who art in heaven. And then, I'm going to show you, what I see four parts of prayer, and you see them printed for you out there in the folder, you'll see them on the screen pop up. He says, if you want to pray to me, then come to me with a surrendered heart. This is how you should pray, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, there's no room for you coming to him saying, God, I'm just coming to announce to you things that I think you may have not noticed. Yep, there's this person in our family, ever since she started dating my son, she's just made havoc of the whole thing. I need to, by the way, that's not a true story. It's going on in me. I don't want to hurt anybody, and that's unnecessarily. It's not happening. But it happens, right? There's that person at work that's a girl in our school now. It's that guy. It's my father. It's my mother. If they'd have raised me better. God, I just need to tell you, I, you, you need to know that I need a little more money on my job. Um, are you watching the elections, Lord? I mean, we need the right guy to be elected um, hey, you come to God and say what? Thy name, Thy kingdom, Thy will. I've surrendered giving you advice. This is a this is diametrically opposed to what happened at the tree when Adam and Eve fell. The devil came and said, "God can't be trusted. He knows you'll be like him, knowing good and evil." And she thought, "He can't be trusted." Well, who can be trusted? I can be trusted. She looked at the tree, and it was good for food and able to make her wise. And she decided she would take it. She decided, and she took over control of her life. And you've said it, some of you, and all of you will feel it eventually in your life. It's kind of humorous because I've said it too. You'll meet someone, and they'll say, like, it's this big aha moment. You know what? My biggest problem in life is I want to be in control. And I want to say, really? That's the first time anybody's ever said that. That's all of our problem. That's everybody's problem. And you may think, no, 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 I'm not a control freak. Well, just take your health away a little bit. Take away the decision whether you can drive or not. Yeah, you want to be in control. You want to be able to go to the restroom when you want to and do whatever, whenever, you know, whenever you want to. We all want to be in control. And that's part of, an example of, Us being in charge. And God says, I want you to surrender all of that when you come to me in prayer. Because you know what? I thought of you. I created the whole world and I created you and the time in which you'd live and exactly where you'd be. And I created this whole thing and I gave you an opportunity to be here. And I am God. And you're not. And you're not going to have a relationship with him if you come to him playing God. And you know what else? You don't need an explanation for anything that's happened in your life, whether it's fair or unfair. And a great example of that is Job. In the Old Testament, Job had a very close relationship with God. What did God say to the devil about Job? He said, there's no one more righteous than him on the planet. He's not talking about Job as better than Jesus. Jesus wasn't even born yet, right? He's talking about all the humans of Job's day. He was the closest to God. He was that guy that anybody around him said, I want to be like him. That guy's close to God. I want what he has. And, and the devil said, yeah, but you've bought him. And so God said, you can take away his wealth, and then later you can take away his children. and You can take away his health, but you can't kill him. Job had no idea that this was going on. And here come Job's friends. First of all, his wife, she thought she'd help him out. She said, why don't you just curse God and let him zap you, kill you? You get, it, get the misery over with. She was miserable too, right? That was bad advice. Well, his friends come along, and this is what they said your big problem is you've got some secret sin. You've been preaching righteousness all along, but you've got some secret sin because if people weren't notorious sinners, God would never treat them this way. In other words, they had an explanation. Problem is, it was wrong. Very wrong and very hurtful. So here's Job. All through the book. It's this long poetic book. A lot of you won't read it because you get lost in the poetry and you're not sure what's going on. Here's Job. I just want an explanation. I have all my life I've made a covenant with my eyes that I would not sin against you by lusting after a woman. I've done this and I've done that. I am a sincere follower of you God. Why would you do this to me? You're the one in charge. You took away all my wealth. You took away all my health. You took away my children. What have I done to deserve this? Why do you leave me living if you're going to treat me this way? I just want you to put me to death. Give me an explanation. I want my day in court. And that went on and on, and if you read it in one sitting, you get tired of it, because it's this back and forth between him and his friends, and finally says, God opens the doorway to heaven to Job, and he says, I'm going to speak. And then it's like playing a hundred questions. Where were you when I made the universe? Can you tell the water when to stop? Do you know how to create continents? Do you know how to make the, the, the snake go along the, the ground or an eagle in the sky? Do you know where the biggest beast in the ocean is right now? Tell me if you know. Do you know what the, how I made the biggest beasts and the planets? And did you know I have a name for all of them? And Job just hears this over and over and over again. And finally Job goes, I don't need an explanation. I'm sorry I said anything. Because he knows. He's He's culpable. Because he demanded an explanation and he lost his surrender. He, he took back being God and demanded an explanation. Am I ringing true for somebody here? Where you've been demanding for an explanation of why life's so unfair, why it went the way it did, why God didn't, didn't intervene? And he says, I don't owe you an explanation. But you still owe me your trust. And what's so crazy about the book of Job is that we don't—we get to see what's going on. It's a contest to show that Job is, is saved by grace through faith and not anything else. And he doesn't get to know ever in his lifetime until he gets to heaven. And you know, Job said, I know that in the end I'll see him as he is. My eyes will see him and not another. And anybody who's walking this planet right now, who's demanding an explanation, is not praying the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. I don't need an explanation. You're God. I'm not. I come to you and say, you get to be the king. Did you notice in the very last of the reading that I put in parentheses, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever? Have you ever prayed this alongside of a Catholic, maybe at their church, and you ended up embarrassing yourself because they stopped at deliver us from evil? And you went, for... And everything was silent in church. It's because they don't pray the end. You know why? It's in parentheses. Some scriptural student who was hand-copying the Bible reading the Lord's Prayer about the first part, kingdom, will be done, whatever, added these words to Scripture. And when they compare all the ancient copies of the Greek Scriptures, they can pretty much tell this ought to be in a footnote because a copyist added that. But it's good stuff. It rounds out the prayer. And so Protestants for for centuries have included it in their prayers. Nothing wrong with it but it's not part of the actual Scripture itself. But the reason I brought it up was this. One of your ancient brothers and sisters who was copying Scripture could tell that the Lord's Prayer was about surrendering. So, lest you miss the point, the person put at the end of the prayer, what? For thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Where is there room for help us beat Central Michigan? And what I'm saying is, not to make fun of that guy, I'm saying that's you and me. Where we say, I really need to tell you how to run things, God, when we come to Him in prayer. This goes away, doesn't it? Okay, secondly, I want you to see what comes next. He says, if you're going to pray about things in this world, this is what you pray. Give us today our daily bread. Two parts. Give us means... We depend on God. We do not depend on ourselves. We depend solely on Him. You ever watched, you ever gone to one of those reports on your computer, and it's like rare found photo or video of people in the bread line during World War II, and you click on that, and you see these people, and you go, oh, how pitiful. Or you see like the, the refugees from one of our African nations, and they all were doctors and lawyers and active people in their jobs and now they're just reduced to the pitiful standing in line just begging for enough food to get their family through for a day and you go oh well I want to tell you that's you there is nothing that we have right now that was not given to us we were we were in the mind of God and he thought to put us in this place at this time. He gave you your health, your wisdom, your opportunities in your education system, the people that would hire you, the salary that anybody would approve. He gave you any kind of social security, retirement system, a family that would help you, any kind of thi- anything at all, he gives it. You Even the knowledge that he would give you that would make you go out and, tr- and work hard in order to be a part of that. And the wherewithal to figure out your place in that so you can participate. He gave you that. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, we're totally dependent upon you. And then he gives you what you need to be happy today. There's some people sitting here that are, are you're still bothered by some decisions you've made in the past. Man, if I'd have just gone to school like my mother and grandmother told me I should have, if I'd have just not spent all that money or got myself into this problem or that problem, life would be so different today. And God is right there handing, taking care of you, and you're still living in the past and the regrets. And he says, come to me in prayer today and just say, Give me today what I need to be happy. There's some of you that are living forever in the future. I think I've got enough. I'm trying to get enough. I don't know if I have enough. I've got to worry about that. And if I don't worry about it, nobody else is. I've got to protect what I have. And in your heart, you're living always in the future. And he says, when you pray, just pray. Give us today. You have to manage your resources. But even if you don't, he's not going to say, whoop, she didn't manage it. I'll stop blessing her. He's going to take care of you. He's going to give you what you need to be happy, to be content. And it has to do with daily sustenance. How did he teach his people in the Old Testament this? He put them in the wilderness and he said, there's nowhere to make a crop. There's nowhere to raise animals. I'm going to put your food out with the morning dew. It's And and you can call it whatever you want. And they said, what is it? And that was the Hebrew word manna. What's it? What is it? And they ate what is it for 40 years. And when they were done with that part, the generation that was adult going in died off. And then they went out. And Moses got everybody together. And all the little kids who were coming up for children's messages for all those years are now grown-ups. And he said, "Get get around, everybody. This is Deuteronomy. I want to tell you what the what's it was about. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, the what's it? What that was about was God wanted to show you that you don't live by your own activity. Your own, you're, you're, you're in charge of your own life. You live by, You get bread by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He was teaching you that you totally depend on Him. He's teaching them that they depended on God for daily bread. Run the clock forward. All the history of Israel, all the history of people since then, all of your personal history, what do you struggle with? Thinking it's all about you and it's dependent on you. So when you say, God, I want to be close to you, teach me how to pray. He says, I want you to let go of worry about anything that's possessions or food or shelter or clothing or anything in this world. Uh, you can work in it and play in it and you can plan in it. Then you can go to all the financial seminars you want and you can be disciplined and you be good. I want you to do that, but I do not want you to pursue it in your heart and worry about it. You just manage it. I'll take care of that, and just come to me in prayer and say, "Take care of me." Isn't that great? Jesus did it perfectly. Have you? Uh oh, you're in trouble. No, you're not. And He did it perfectly for you. And a really neat story. 40 years in the wilderness for Israel, 40 days for Jesus, didn't eat, didn't drink. devil comes to him and says, make stones into bread. You're God. Take control. Be in charge. And Jesus is, is the Lord's Prayer personified. What? Thine, thine is the kingdom. So this is what Jesus says. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what he was quoting? The very verse Moses gave Israel that they would learn the lesson of the manna. Because Jesus always got his lesson right. And you know why he did that? Because he cares about you. He did it to save you. Because you couldn't do it perfectly. So now you know, life is not about pursuing things in this life. That's idolatry. It's actually about pursuing God, taking care of your daily bread. Well, what does it mean to pursue God? Well, Jesus said, Pursue my kingdom and my righteousness, not earthly possessions, Not worries about food. Pursue my righteousness. What is that about? Guess what the next phrase in the Lord's Prayer is? Righteousness. Pastor, I've looked in the Lord's Prayer. I don't see the word righteousness anywhere. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Righteousness from God is a gift of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense forgiveness. It's not part of Christianity, forgiveness is Christianity. And God knows that we struggle. And so when he gave us the perfect prayer, he put he only had so much he was going to give us and one big slot right in the middle is all about forgiveness. And the truth is, everyone in here is having trouble forgiving someone. And if you figured it out yesterday, you forgot overnight. And you're struggling again today. And I want to ask you, who is that person or who are those persons that you struggle to have grace and forgiveness for? You know why I ask you that? To think about that? Because that's why he gave you the Lord's Prayer. That every time you'd say it, you'd go, forgive us our trespasses. And so we..." Oh, I've got to think about Susie Q. I've got to think about Fred. Help me forgive. You might say, I cannot forgive. I just can't do it. And God says, you're on the right track. You cannot do it without me. And I'm going to help you. And, and he says, and look at me. And you say, I, I am looking at you. He says, no, look at me on the cross. Okay, Lord, I'm looking at you on the cross. And he goes, where are you? And you go, you're at the foot of the cross. Why am I on the cross? Because of me? Yeah. Don't put yourself in that place of John the Apostle, the beloved one. Put yourself in the place of the Pharisees or somebody else. And John was a failure. So put yourself there as long as you understand it. But put yourself at the foot of the cross. I am on the cross for you. You are forgiven. Now, guess who's sitting next to you, kneeling? The person you're mad at. I'm on the cross for them too. Yeah, Lord, but they haven't apologized correctly yet. He goes, have you apologized to me correctly? Every time. But my grace is still true. Why not forgive them the way I'm forgiving them? Why not forgive them the way I'm forgiving you? Not a grace that's dependent on a perfect apology, but a grace that's independent that comes from me. You need me right now. I'm giving myself to you. Here's my grace. Now share it with that person. All that comes when you pray sincerely, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You don't do it perfectly. And that's why Jesus did it for you. Someone might say, you know, there's just some sins that are too big. And it's too much for God the Father to ask anybody to forgive the big ones. Or, as one fellow told me, yeah, that's Jesus. When he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Do you know anybody else in the Bible that was a sinner that's prayed, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing? Anybody? Stephen. New Testament, early Christian, stoning him to death. Father, do not charge this sin against them. They were killing him. They were killing him. He was not going to escape. He did not escape. He died. They were killing him. A gruesome, harsh, murderous, in the name of religion, killing him. And he said, forgive them. Stephen is a stark example that you can pray the Lord's Prayer as long as you have God. And without it, you're a hypocrite, and there's no way you could ever pray it. Well, we're, we're, uh, we've got the right pursuit. <laughs> we're learning to trust, right? we got God, surrendered to God. We're trusting Him. We're forgiving. Now we're ready to focus on the biggest last thing. And guess what? I don't know what lately you thought the biggest thing was, but it's really not getting through college. It's really not graduating from high school. It's not getting to show the greatest animal at the livestock show. It's not winning in anything. It's not avoiding losing at anything. It's not about your relationships only on earth. The biggest thing, the biggest thing every day is rarely talked about. I've been in the business of spirituality and walking with God for a long time now. And I, I it's been very, very, very rare that somebody would call me, text me, email me, and say, Can you help me not offend God? We preachers have to spend all our time helping people understand how offensive things are to God. Because darkened sinners don't worry about God and his feelings. They don't worry about sinning against him. But Jesus does. Because Jesus said one time when they were all after him, he said, Look into my life. I have never done anything against the Father. In fact, he said, the Father loves me because I always please him. A couple of times God said, that's the one I love. I'm pleased in him. And I'm telling you it this way so you'll understand it. The nature of true spirituality is to want to make God happy and not sin against his holiness. That's the nature of true spirituality to not want to sin against God's holiness. It's not about you. It's about Him. And when it's about Him, we're all going to be fine. And to get that and to understand that would lead you to pray, what? My biggest thing today is, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. And Jesus, looking around at those disciples who said, teach me to pray, knew that they were no match for the devil. And I'm going to tell you that you and I aren't either. He is a beast, he is wily, he is deceitful, and he has a massive campaign to communicate with all of us through the ways of the world. He communicates with us individually, and he has demons that know our family traits, our personal traits, and he is always after our soul. And Jesus one time said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear God who can put your soul in hell if you're not about the main thing. And he knows the evil one is our big foe. The devil took down a holy woman, Eve. The woman had no sin, and he took her down. How much easier are you and I, with our weakness of our heart, to come and tempt and put in a situation that would make us sin against God, where he's far away, and we're just trying to figure out how to not get hurt, or not be lose our ego, and... All that, oh my goodness. We, we need to learn to pray this prayer every day. Lord, I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to fall to the evil one. I need your help. Everybody fails at this except for Jesus. And when he was tempted in the wilderness, what did he do three times? Each time the temptation came, he showed us what humans are supposed to do. He quoted scripture. He didn't care how he felt. He cared about what God felt. And you can learn to do the same. You see, the truth is this objective reality outside of you that you depend on and you bring into your life and you depend on it. But what if you don't know much of the truth? Hello? Now you know what your job is. To grow in the knowledge of the truth. To be devotionally in God's Word. Because if you don't want to sin against God, then you need to know what God says so when the devil comes, you can filter everything through what the Word says. And that's a lifelong project. Now take a big step back. Four four parts to the Lord's Prayer. Surrender, trust, grace, and holiness. These are the core values... Some of you are in companies where when they hired you, they brought you on, they said, Now let me explain to you the core values. These are the core values of a relationship with God. They are the core values of being in His family. And we're all adopted. We weren't born in. There is only one only begotten, blood son. And He's the great example, He's also the great Savior. That man, Jesus, and his Father brought us in, and we're already in. So this whole talk about prayer and the Lord's Prayer, this isn't so you somehow climb up on a hill and you say, okay, now I'm praying it so much better, I'm now one of God's children. No, you already are one of God's children. You're adopted through grace. You're forgiven, you're loved. Now you're just learning how to be that child. There are lots of ways to tell when a person grows up, but I'm going to tell you one of them. One of the ways that you can tell a person has grown up is when, they, they, when they're born into a family, they want their mommy and daddy and their brothers and sisters to make them happy. I want them to make them me happy. I want them to make me happy. And all the temper tantrums and all the striving and all the the, uh, competing and all of that and all the conniving and trying to manipulate and play mom and dad against one another is to try to make me happy. But when a person grows up, and I mean truly grows up, I don't mean just in their body, they flip and they want to make their parents happy from a deep, deep love and appreciation for the great treasure that they have in their parents. And you can tell when somebody's shipwrecked because they'll, they'll be an adult and still not appreciating anything that their parents did and still hating the mistakes that they made. But when they flip, they want to make them happy. There's been a change of life and a change of heart that's made them grown up. Well, the Lord's Prayer is an example of someone who wants to make God happy. And by teaching you today in a very long sermon, I know, on the meaning of the Lord's Prayer, my goal is that there'd be a whole bunch of people here that would make God happier than he's been. So he won't be standing out on the middle of a football field with you and having you pray, help me beat the heck out of somebody else. But he'll know you've got a beating heart that's right next to his beating heart. And you, you know the family values. And you value them too. And I'll tell you another thing. Not only will he be happy, but you will be the happiest you've ever been. When you know you're connected to God through his grace and truth. And that's what faith's all about. Amen.